If you'll take your Bibles this morning, we're going to turn open to the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We're going to look this morning at verses 34 through 46, though I'm going to spend very little time on that second part of the passage. We'll have to pick it back up next week because it's an important passage, but I could get to all of it, I decided last night. So chapter 22, verses 34, and we're going to read through 46, but spend most of our time in verses 34 through 40 this morning. Let's go ahead and pray as we open God's Word here together this morning. Our Father, we want to know Your Word because we want to know You. And so we pray that Your Word would not return void this morning, but it would accomplish its purposes in our hearts and in our minds. Your Spirit preach a better sermon than I have in outline form and notes. May you press and seal your truth upon our hearts for your glory and for your praise. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 46. This is the holy and errant word of God. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We've seen now in back-to-back passages after back-to-back weeks that The elites in Israel have sought to trap Jesus here on multiple occasions. You remember the Pharisees came to Jesus first with a question in order to entrap Him about the tax that was paid to Caesar. And when Jesus gave them an answer that uh, blew their minds, they walked away. 
And so the Sadducees decided that they would try their hand at it. And so the Sadducees came with their question about the resurrection. And you'll remember that as Jesus answered that, it, we are told in the text that the Sadducees walked away in silence. Well, now the Pharisees are back. And they are going to try their hand after they have seen the Sadducees quieted. And they have a question for Jesus this time about the law. They send one of their own, a lawyer. I'm not going to make any jokes this morning. It's far too easy at this point. Uh, but the lawyer it would have been someone that would have been the brightest of the brightest among the Pharisees. He would have been an authority on the law. He would have been someone that all the rest of the Pharisees equally respected. And he comes to Jesus with an important question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? That's a fair question. It's a fair question. The Jews of the time, this was a big debate among the Jews at the time, as they calculated the number of laws in the Old Testament Scriptures, they counted up 613 laws. Now, if they come to Jesus and said, Jesus, which of these laws is important? The answer would have been simple. They're all important. That's not the question. They're all important. But it's clear that some laws are more important than other laws. For example, a law that speaks about yoking together two different types of animals or the law about not destroying fruit trees in the times of war is not quite as important as the law that says you should not prostitute your daughters or you shall have no other gods before me or thou shall not commit murder. Important, but there are some that are of more importance. And so they come with this question, which is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus? When I was a pastoral intern in Dallas, Texas, and to be my year pastoral internship, uh, I was doing it at a a large Presbyterian church of 3,000 plus members. And so as pastoral interns, they wouldn't allow us to preach on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening rightfully because that was a little too many people. So we would preach at what was called the Vesper service. There was a Vesper service that was a midweek service on Wednesdays that people that wanted to worship halfway through the week uh, in addition to Sunday would come to that Vesper service. And we would preach in the chapel, and the chapel, there would maybe be a hundred people that would gather for this service. The first time I was ever assigned preaching at a Vesper service was maybe the, the first time that I ever preached in a church, maybe the second time I'd ever preached. I was sitting on the second row waiting for the moment in the service when I was called forth to preach, and so I got up and I walked to the front, and then I turned around. And as I turned around, there were three latecomers to the service. And the three latecomers filed in the back, and the first was my mentor, who was 70-plus years old and was one of the founding fathers of the PCA, of this denomination. He was actually the, steering, the chairman of the steering committee that formed the denomination, so was highly regarded, highly respected, and 
had a lifetime of ministry. The second man that filed in was the senior pastor of this 3,000-plus member church and was widely considered at the time the best preacher in the denomination. And then the third man that followed in, if I said his name, most of you would recognize it. He is considered by many in the evangelical world today to be the best preacher in the English language, and he is by far one of the best systematic theologians we have in the Reformed world. And I stood up to preach. After the service was over, the three of them walked, waited for me, and walked with me back to the offices, and uh, they were very gracious. Too gracious, uh, for sure. But can you imagine the scene if they, while we were walking along, said, Now, Jason, help us. What's the thrust of preaching? Or, Jason, when you're wrestling with an Old Testament text, how is it that you preach Christ from the Old Testament text? He'd say, Well, that, that would be a silly scene. They're the experts. Jesus is a carpenter's son. He has no formal training. He has no position. He has no authority in their eyes. But they come to Him with the question of the day. What's the greatest commandment? This is something they're wrestling with and they're debating among themselves and they're coming to the carpenter's son to ask. But it's not because they want an answer. It's because they want to show him to be the fool that they believe him to be. And they're going to find out, just like the Sadducees did, that any fool which is seeking to entrap Jesus and make a fool of him is shown to be a fool themselves. And they're going to walk away in silence. They ask him this question, which is the greatest commandment? That's the question. Second, let's see the answer. I imagine that the Pharisees expected Jesus as they asked him this great question, the pressing question of the day. I expect that they expected him to, to answer with one of the Ten Commandments. Of all of the 613 laws of the Old Testament, we could divide them up really in three categories. We often do in theology. We will talk about there are the civil laws or the judicial laws, those laws that govern the nation of Israel and help to maintain justice within the nation. There were what we call, secondly, the ceremonial laws, which detailed the sacrificial system and what happened in that sacrificial system as the people worshipped God. The third set of laws were the moral law. And the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And that moral law is everlasting for the people of God. And so surely he would quote from the Ten Commandments, grab one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus answers this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
And every Jew would have known that. It comes from the Shema, from Deuteronomy 6, that great text in Judaism. It's almost an exact quote, except Jesus adds in our text, mind. In Mark's gospel, Jesus will add yet another attribute. He will say strength. You are to worship the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And now this this trips up a lot of people. They say, ah, oh, what, what, this is problematic. No, it's not problematic. Jesus has probably asked this question on multiple occasions. This is a question of the day, and so would have been on people's minds. But the point here is Jesus is not describing different parts of our being that we're to love God with. That's not His point. Rather, His point is that we are to love God with our entire person. Our entire capacity, what constitutes us as human beings, our entire life, all that we are, is to be offered in love and motivated by love for Him. We might say today in our modern language, we are to wholeheartedly love God. That's might be how we would say it today. He then gives them a bonus. He said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, love is the key. The second is that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And people get tripped up here as well and debating about, are we actually being commanded here to love ourselves. That, that is not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is that you and I care for ourselves. We nurture ourselves. We feed ourselves. We take care of ourselves. In essence, we love ourselves. And so even as you love self, you are to love others. You'll notice he is making broad, sweeping commands here. Neither of these commands is limited. There's no part of your person that is to be off limits to to loving God. Your entire person is to be offered in love to God. All of you. And there is to be no one that is somehow absent from your love. All people are your neighbor's and are to be recipients of your love. Jesus will make that point in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that even those that we would consider outside of our love are our neighbors and are to be recipients of love, the objects of our love. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we have the question, we have second the answer, and now we have the explanation why this is the case. This is why these two commandments rise above all the rest, because all the law and all the prophets depend upon these two. The question is why? Why? Are the others unimportant? No, we've answered that. God didn't give laws without purpose. 
The reason is that we cannot fulfill any of the other requirements of the law apart from living in and being motivated by love of God and love of neighbor. That's the explanation. You can't do the rest. It's an impossibility to do the rest without these two being the foundational principles without these two undergirding everything else. One theologian said it this way, it's not love over law, as if one system is over another. Rather, it is the priority of love within the law. And that's right. It's love in the law. And all the rest of the laws, but the working out of these two principles, love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. It's that simple. And yet it is so profound. It is absolutely easy to say. And it's quite another to live. Love God, love your neighbor. If you have a heartbeat as a Christian, and you hear Jesus say this, this should absolutely motivate you and it should humble you to the dust. I want to work out this explanation a little bit more. Let me start by saying this. If you know Christ, you can truly love. You can truly love. If you don't know Christ, you can't truly love. I understand that's offensive. Let's work out why. The reason is because we, who know Christ, are recipients of divine, gracious, eternal, full to overflowing love. We are recipients of divine, gracious, eternal, full to overflowing love. The Christian can love in a true and an absolutely genuine way because we have first been loved by God. We are the recipients of divine love. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. John will say that we love because He first loved us. And there is no love like the love of God. It is divine love. It is an undeserved love. It is a gracious love. It wouldn't be quite as lovely if it was deserved. But God's love to His people is always an undeserved love. It is always tinctured, that is stained with. It it is always dipped in that graciousness of God. His love is always an act of grace towards us. It is divine love. It is gracious love. It is also eternal love. Gerhardus Voss, the Dutch theologian, said it better than any. One of my favorite quotes in history, he said, the best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in the fact that He never began 
to love us. If you're loved by Christ, it's because you've always been loved. If he was not divine, if it was not divine love, if it was like human love, there's a starting place. There can even be an ending place, but not with divine love. It's eternal. There was never a time that he started loving you. Always has loved you. And so forever will love you. It is far more glorious, this love. It surpasses any comparisons. There's a, there's a different dimension to God's love when we start talking about the love of God. It is, it is incomparable. John Owen once challenged his readers. He said, set your thoughts on the eternal love of the Father and see if your heart is not aroused to delight in Him. If you ever take time like that and you just ever sit as a child of God and just try and turn over in your mind what it means that you're the object of divine love. You think upon that. Can't help but as Owen says, cause delight in us. It's divine, it's gracious, it's eternal. And it's full to overflowing. Paul will speak of this love in Ephesians as a love that has no height and no depth and no brength and no length. He will say that it is a, a love that is incomprehensible, that is beyond knowledge. You, you, can't, you can't wrap your mind around this love. It's a, it's a full love, a love that's overflowing in bounty. There's no way to, to hem it in. It's a love that fills to capacity. And the love of God is aimed at us in Christ. The love is so full that it, it can't be contained. It's, it's an overflowing love. And that's why these are the two primary commandments. You are the object of this divine, gracious, eternal, full to overflowing, gracious love. And it overflows into you. And as it fills your person, it can't help but overflow. And it overflows in returning back in love to Him. And overflows into splashing onto others and loving them. This is why everything else follows in the trail of these two principal things that are summarized in love. You know, Paul often, he does a couple of times in the Scriptures, refers to us as, as vessels or cups. You think of this overflowing love of the intraterritorian God, the there is such love between the persons of God that, 
that that love, it, it can't just remain stagnant. It, it, it overflows. And so it overflows in the works of creation and salvation and consummation for all of eternity. It just overflows. And as that love of the triune God overflows, that inter-Trinitarian love, it fills us. But it's not like it just fills us partway. It's not just like it fills us to the brim because it's complete. It, it naturally overflows. I want to look at this love to God and this love to neighbor. What does this mean for our lives? What does this mean for our activities? First, it means that all we do is to be aimed at love for God and love for others. All that we do is to be aimed at love for God and love for others. Jesus is correcting the Pharisees here and their practice. They had become mere formalists in religion. They obeyed the law, but there was no love in their obedience, and such clinical religion is not acceptable to God no matter how much we honor His precepts. We, in fact, do not honor them unless our conduct is saturated with love. The Bible will not allow you and I to be mere formalists. When Christ addresses the churches in Revelation, and there is that fascinating letter that, that John is, is writing by the command of Christ to that church in Ephesus and he says this to the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. It's a commendation from Christ. Ephesus was a, a prosperous city. It was one of the chief cities uh, of that region and especially in the empire. And it was a place where the cultic worship of Caesar was practiced. It was the great place for the worship of Artemis, that god. And it was really a melting pot for all kinds of false worship. And Christ is commending them. And he's saying, you've withstood all of those outside pressures, all of that false religion. You've held on to truth. And he'll say, not only that, you've not only held on from the assaults from the outside, you've held on from the assaults from the inside. You've recognized false prophets. You haven't bought into what they're peddling. They were doctrinally discerning. And Christ praises them for that. That's good. That's needed. We covered that last week in the text. I pray that every church and every Christian is, is doctrinally discerning. We're called to that. But then he says this to them. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. They're doctrinally sound. 
They are even fierce for truth. And Jesus says, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand, meaning they will cease to exist as a church. Why? Because it's not grounded in love. What love? Was it lack of love for God? Was it lack of love for others? I think it's left ambiguous on purpose. Because they're two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. You can't profess love for God and not love others. That's an impossibility. You can't love others unless you love God. That's an impossibility. They're two sides of the same coin. So he is saying to them, you lack love. And I'll take away your lampstand. Love is to be the motive of all that we do. D.A. Carson said it wonderfully about this church in Ephesus. He said, they still proclaim the truth, but no longer passionately love him who is the truth. They still perform good deeds, but no longer out of love, brotherhood, and compassion. They preserve the truth and witness courageously, but forget that love is the greatest witness to truth. He then points out that no amount of good works, discernment, and matters of church discipline, even patient endurance and hardship or hatred of sin, or even doctrinal fidelity can ever make up for lovelessness. Because it's the foundation. These are the principles. Now everything else follows. Second, let us never separate the law from the lawgiver. These are the greatest commandments given by God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we are not to separate the law from the lawgiver. We're not to separate the commands of God from God. This is a constant temptation. This is a great trap of both legalism and antinomianism. Legalism, that that desire to somehow earn favor with God or somehow realize our salvation by obedience to the letter of the law, as if that does it. Antinomianism, that total disregard for the law, as if the law somehow doesn't matter, as if we're not to live our life by the law. Now they both, what they do is they separate the law from the lawgiver. They both separate the commandments from the God who gave the commandments. This is the old era going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's what Satan is tempting Eve to do. It's just to look at it as a bare law. Do not eat from that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And not to see it as a law that was given by her God who is a God of love. And so it becomes abstract. It becomes just a mere formality and just a weight and just a duty in the worst sense of the word. God is love. When you keep the law tied to the lawgiver, you 
see the law through the lens of the lawgiver, and you know that the law is an act of love. It's for your good. It's for my good. He's actually being gracious to us. He's being kind to us. He's being generous to us and showing us what is actually good for our persons and what is good for those around us and what is good for our souls. It's love. Pharisees were legalists. They purely thought about the law apart from the lawgiver and saw it as some kind of box to check instead of seeing the law through the lens of love. You know, a husband, a good husband, doesn't complain about the fact that he is to be a one-woman man. It's a good law. Because he sees himself as the recipient of her love. And he sees her as the recipient of his love. And he knows that there is a mountain of blessings that comes by being a one-man woman. It's a good law. It's a good rule when seen through the lens of love. This is how the law becomes a delight because we see obedience to our God through the lens of love. His love to us, and then the overflow of that love, and so we desire to obey the law because we love Him. It becomes sweet. Third, that leads to this, that we are to pursue love because it's a reflection of God Himself. We're to pursue love because it's a reflection of God Himself. There is nothing more contrary to Christ's example than unfeeling, hard-heartedness masquerading as service to the Father. Love is the heartbeat of Christianity because it is a reflection of God Himself. God is love. There's an eternal love between the three persons of the Godhead, and our love is a reflection of that intra-Trinitarian love. So Paul, when he is writing to the church in Ephesus, way before John will write that letter in Revelation, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he'll say this to them in Ephesians 5. He'll say, therefore, speaking to these Ephesians, be imitators of God as beloved children. Great, Paul, what does it look like to be imitators of God? This, walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, we never look more like Christ than when we are living in love. Fourth, we pursue love because love pleases God as we were created to do. Love pleases God as we were created to do. Calvin, when he is wrestling with these different passages, will say, isn't it interesting that Jesus does not say that the first and greatest commandment is to serve God. He doesn't say it's to fear God. He doesn't even say it is to honor God. 
He says it is to love God. And Calvin asks the question, why? And he says it is because only by the free exercise of our wills that we actually please God. It is impossible for you and I to obey God without loving Him first. Love is the greatest. It's also the first principle. We have to love God before there is any obedience according to the law. As Calvin said, forced obedience of men God takes no joy in, but wishes their service to be free and spontaneous. So love has to be first. Yet some have argued, they've said over the centuries, as accusations against Christians and the church of saying, oh no, this is really motivated by self-love. Your love for God is grounded first in self-love. It's because, as different enemies of the gospel have said, it's because you see God as a comfort for you. You look to Him as a crutch. That's actually self-love that motivates you to love God. Or they say, no, it's because you're looking at heaven and you're looking at the comfort of heaven. And that's really self-love that motivates you to love God. The answer is no. Love of God never works that way. It can't work that way. We love God first. The reason He is a comfort to my soul is because I love Him. The reason heaven is actually a comfort to my soul is because I love Him and I get to be with Him. love first. How does this happen? How do we have this spontaneous, free exercise of love for God before anything else? How does that happen? And the answer is, it's truly Love at first sight. It is the real love at first sight. It is when God in this divine, gracious, eternal, full to overflowing love opens the eyes of your heart to see Him. That you fall in love with Him. Find Him lovely. Find Christ as glorious. and That He's beyond all things to be desired. There's, there's an excellence there. When we see God, we, we don't simply see Him on the same level as we see other things of excellence. It's not as if it is, it is an even playing field. No, there is a greater excellence there. It's divine excellence, which demands that there be a greater love. And so we love Him above all other loves. He's the pearl of great price. He is worth choosing above father and mother and wife and children. 
When you truly see God in Christ, you see an excellence that exceeds everything else. Nothing could be more lovely. And so you choose to love Him. And that pleases Him. Now any of us that know ourselves know that our love is tepid, it's small. I think about this last week, let alone this last month or this last year, and it's embarrassing how little I love the Lord my God with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my mind and with all of my strength. How little I love my neighbor as myself. And yet, I look back over the past 20 years or past 10 years or even past five years, I see growth. In fact, the more we grow in knowledge of God, the more beautiful He becomes to us. We fall more in love with Him. And yet what's fascinating in the Christian life, and I didn't understand early in the Christian life, that as I grow in greater knowledge of God, so I grow in greater love of God. But at the same time, I'm also growing in knowledge of the depth of the price that was paid for my sin, and I'm growing in knowledge of the depth of my sin. These things happen simultaneously. And you have those moments in the Christian life where it's just like you're getting hit with a lightning bolt. What a wretched, wretched sinner I am. How small is my love compared to the measure of grace and love that I've been shown. We're prone, we will look around at others around us and we'll think how great their love is for Christ and how great their love is for others. And the reason is, is because we can just see the outside, whereas here we can see the inside. And so that is why we need the passage that follows this one. I meant this morning to walk us through that as well, but I... Gonna to have to push a lot of that to next week, but but I want you to think about this passage following and its impact upon this passage that I am to love the Lord my God with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength, and I'm to love my neighbor as myself, and I am continually failing. Am I growing? Oh God, I pray so, but I am continually failing. And why is that? Because I'm still in this flesh. This wretched flesh. I'm still in this fallen, evil world that continues to try and pull off the path and distract. I continue to have an adversary that tempts and tries and wants to lead our affections to anything but God and others. And so we remind ourselves that this one 
This one that the Pharisees came to with this question, he has the answer and he silences them because this one is the one that David called Lord. This one is the Messiah King. This one is the Priest King. This is the one who God is making all His enemies a footstool beneath His feet. And all my enemies are His enemies. And he silences every single one of his adversaries. Everyone. Including my flesh. Including sin. Including this world. Including Satan. This one who loves me. And has paid the price for me. Is the one who reigns over me. That should give you and I the greatest motivation to day by day, moment by moment, to seek to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we fail, to continue to lean into Him I recognize that He is submitting all of those enemies. He is silencing them all. And He is reigning over me. And I am the object of His love, not just now, but for all of eternity. Because it is a divine, gracious, full, overflowing, divine love that can't be taken away. I have a good God who has given us a good law for the good of our souls. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise this morning. Give praise to you and the Son and the Spirit, God of great, such, of such great love, that you showered upon your people. And oh, we would walk in this love and have it shape us in all that we do. That we might live pleasing lives to you. Help us to love you more and more so with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. That you might receive the glory that is your due. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.